You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bringing you the best story, best trends, and best game from the best conference. Fourth and manageable, an SEC football podcast. Brought to you by 2400 Sports. Now, here's Brad Edwards. Hello and welcome into our new podcast, Fourth and Manageable, covering SEC football. I'm Brad Edwards, and this is a podcast that uh, if you haven't found it before today, you'll be able to get it three times a week. We debuted last Thursday. We did our second show uh, at the end of the day's action on Saturday, which posted on Sunday morning. And right now we're recording on Monday, on Labor Day, but this will be posted on Tuesday. And once the schedule normalizes and we get into our typical college football week, you'll be able to find us every Tuesday, Thursday, and then Sunday morning. And uh, once the playoff rankings start coming out, you'll get a second uh, show on Tuesday, which will be Tuesday night when we'll react to those rankings. Uh, But anyway, the reason I'm letting you know that we're recording on Monday is because there are a couple stories that are developing right now involving LSU players, and at least one, if both of those, might be resolved by the time you actually hear this podcast. So I just want to let you know we're aware of them. Uh, we will uh, address them, but if our information is not up to date, that's why, that we're, we're doing this uh, well in advance of when you're likely to hear it for the first time. So when we last talked to you on Saturday night, uh, when I was with my co-host Tyler Bray, who will be joining me in just a little bit uh, to talk about that LSU game against Florida State, uh, we were saying that, hey, LSU was all that the SEC needed to go 14-0 and in that week one of college football action, and obviously that didn't happen. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit, uh, but still a 13-1 and week. Very good performance for the SEC. And on top of that, 3-0 and against ranked opponents with uh, Georgia knocking off Oregon, Arkansas beating Cincinnati, and then Florida pulling a mild upset at home against number seven, Utah. It was uh, it was a, a good week all in all for the SEC, and a bunch of other teams just got the kinks out uh, against weaker competition, uh, but a lot of W's, only one L, and uh, now we look ahead to week two. And uh, as we'll typically do on this Tuesday podcast, we'll look back at a little bit of week one and uh, or I should say, look back a little bit at the previous week and then look ahead uh, to the coming Saturday uh, with our coverage. And and I'm going to start today by just looking at some numbers that really jumped out at me. Uh, many of you have listened to me for a long time. No, I'm a numbers guy. Um, I, I don't uh, necessarily like to get uh, too deep into complete trivia, um, but this is this is my opportunity to get into some things that that might not really be that relevant on the field, but just things that I find interesting, and hopefully you will too. And one of those is that LSU, after losing last night, um, third straight season opener, the Tigers have lost, which is kind of surprising. So basically after winning the national championship in 2019, uh, they've lost the first game of the next three seasons. The last time LSU lost a season opener three years in a row, you got to go back to the the 90s, and it was actually 91 through 95, where most of that was because they were opening every season with Texas A&M at a time when Texas A&M was the best team in the Southwest Conference, and that was the reason for it. But any LSU fan will tell you 
90s is not something that you want to keep in your memory as an LSU football fan because it was a dark decade. And the way this one has started, um, LSU fans are in fear of a repeat. Um, and they, they don't want the, the 2020s to be anything like the 1990s because uh, there were not a lot of highlights for LSU football uh, in that decade. And, and this one is, is starting out poorly. Like I said, just a few minutes, uh, Tyler and I are going to discuss what happened uh, in New Orleans on Sunday evening. Uh, another thing that uh, jumped out at me, and, and let me first thank sportsreference.com for this information. Give them credit for it because uh, they have a great website. If you're a college football fan and you love statistics, just check out uh, sportsreference.com. They cover a lot of sports, but college football is the one uh, that, that we're benefiting from here. And one of the things I looked at was the returning Heisman winner, Alabama quarterback Bryce Young, had five touchdown passes in the first half, and then on the only drive he played in the second half to start the, the third quarter, uh, he added enough rushing yards to finish with 100 for the day. So five touchdown passes, 100 rushing yards. According to Sports Reference, he's the third SEC player since 2000 to do that in the game. Uh, the, the last one was Keaton Thompson of Mississippi State, who did it against Stephen F. Austin in 2018. His teammate, Nick Fitzgerald, did it two seasons earlier against Samford. You know, Samford, Stephen F. Austin, Utah State, which is the, the opponent for Bryce Young. None of those are impressive opponents, but really what jumps out at me is that when, when you look at the evolution of the dual threat quarterback, it is um, not that likely that anyone did that before 2000 because most of the time back then, a quarterback who would have had 100 yards rushing was not the kind of guy with a skill set who was going to throw five touchdowns in a game. So the reason I'm bringing this up is there's a chance, I can't prove it, but there's a chance that what Bryce Young did the other night was only the third time in SEC history uh, that that's happened, that a quarterback had five touchdown passes and 100 rushing yards in a game. If anyone's aware of another one, please reach out. Let me know. I would love to know just because I, I, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. But um, uh, still, I, I think that it's uh, it's compelling for that reason, which is it hasn't happened very many times uh, in the history of the conference and, and maybe only three. Also in that game, Alabama shut out Utah State. Not shocking. Um, but what's interesting is that's the 23rd shutout that Alabama has had since the 2009 season which was the first national championship year under Nick Saban. So when you look at the last, what, 13 seasons plus one game, Alabama's 23 shutouts are by far the most in the nation. Now, look, there are a lot of stats that Alabama is going to have by far the most in the nation over that span. But in this category, the second most by any team is 14 shutouts. And that's a tie between Wisconsin and Georgia. Which brings me to the next number that I found interesting, another number related to defensive dominance, which is that Georgia, while they didn't have a shutout against Oregon on Saturday, they allowed only three points. It was the 11th time since 2019, so the last three seasons in one game, the 11th time that Georgia held a power five opponent out of the end zone. That is remarkable in that number of games to have 11 times that a power five team couldn't even score a touchdown against you. Just to put that in perspective, the next most by any team in the country over that span is five by Alabama. So 11 for Georgia, the next most is, is 
fewer than half that number, five by Alabama. And and for those who have picked up on the common thread, it's Kirby Smart. Now, I'm not giving Kirby credit for every shutout Alabama had during that span, uh, but he was the defensive coordinator at Alabama for a lot of them uh, in the early years under Nick Saban and uh, certainly has been a driving force behind how good Georgia's defense has been in these last few years. So, uh, you know, cap tip to both the Alabama and Georgia defenses and a big cap cap tip to Kirby Smart uh, for what he's been doing defensively in this conference for a long time. His impact has certainly been felt. And then one other one I want to mention, uh, just because it kind of flies in the face of logic to us, which is we have this conception of Lane Kiffin as an offensive genius. And just to be clear, I think he's a very good offensive coach and his track record supports that. I mean, whether you're talking about his time as a play caller, whether that was at USC or at Alabama um, or, you know, any of his head coaching stops uh, since he left Alabama, he's certainly had some very good offenses. Where, uh, where you really start scratching your head is when you look at what's happened lately with Ole Miss's offense. And Ole Miss fans, I'm sure, are well aware of this, but the rest of the conference and the rest of the country probably isn't, which is that when Ole Miss scored 28 points against Troy on Saturday, it was the ninth consecutive game in which Ole Miss did not score more than 31. That's surprising, isn't it? I'm mean, with Lane Kiffin as the head coach, and especially when you look at some of the opponents in that stretch, to have not scored more than 31 points in nine straight games, um, it's not only surprising to have happened with a Lane Kiffin coach team, but here's the context. That is tied for the longest active streak in the in the Power Five. I was about to say the FBS. In the Power Five with Northwestern and Duke. Okay, Ole Miss is tied with Northwestern and Duke for most consecutive games in the Power Five without scoring more than 31 points. Now, here's the difference, though, between those teams. Over the nine games without scoring 31, Northwestern is 2-7. and seven. Duke is 1-8. and eight. Ole Miss is 7-2. and two. All right, so at the same time as we kind of say, Lane, what's going on here with the offense? We also have to give Ole Miss credit for the way that they've turned around that defense because – when he first took over as head coach, that defense was a punchline nationally. I mean, they couldn't stop anybody. And they really turned it around to a big degree last year. And uh, obviously, at least through one week this year, seemed to, you know, to, to still be a solid defensive team. And that's what allows you to go 7-2 and two over a nine-game span in today's college football, despite not scoring more than 31 in any of those games. Now, a lot of them, they've scored 31 or close to it, which is part of the reason they're 7-2. and two. Um, But you see these days so many teams that lose games where they're scoring in the 30s or the 40s or even the, the 50s. Um, we had a North Carolina App State game last weekend where a team scored in the 60s and lost. So, um, you know, being able to uh, to hold teams to where you can consistently win without scoring 31 points is a tribute to the Ole Miss defense. And like I said, you've got to give Kiffin some credit for that. In addition to wondering, where is that offense? I think we're going to see it break out this weekend. Uh, but still, I wanted to mention it while I still could, while the streak is still alive, because that's a head-scratcher that Ole Miss has not broken out on anybody offensively in quite a while. Um, it's probably going to happen on Saturday. But, uh, hey, if you're the type to throw out interesting info at the water cooler to get a reaction – 
there's one for you to try out on some folks because I'm guessing most of the people who follow SEC football, if they're not Ole Miss fans, they had no idea about that streak. And now it's time to welcome in my co-host, Tyler Bray, former Tennessee quarterback. Tyler, we last talked on Saturday night. The SEC was a, a perfect 13-0 and in week one, and we were just waiting on LSU to make it a perfect 14-0 and on Sunday night, and it didn't exactly happen that way. I want to get your thoughts on the uh, the debut of, of Brian Kelly in Baton Rouge, or actually in, in New Orleans in this case for that particular game. What went right, if anything, and then uh, just tell me about how you'd be feeling right now if you were an LSU player after what happened in game one. Yeah, it's got to be tough. Yeah, you had it. All you needed was kind of an extra point to send it into overtime and give your team a chance. Stuff happens. There was things that happened in, earlier in the game, though, that uh, led to that. So it wasn't just, you know, the mixed extra point. I mean, there were some coaching decisions made. There was some plays that, you know, could have ended up differently and uh, it all kind of led to that outcome of losing by one. It seemed like the LSU offense was never really in sync. I mean, the, the very first play they had offensively, you have a, a, a long quarterback scramble, which, I mean, on, on paper it looks good, but it seemed like that the the whole flow of the passing game was never really there. And then uh, you, throughout the game, you saw a lot of frustration by their number one receiver, uh, Kayshawn. Uh, and up to this point, he's always been for, referred to as Boutte. Uh, I, I noticed last night they were pronouncing it Boutte. So we'll say Kayshawn Boutte uh, for LSU. Number seven was very frustrated uh, throughout the game with his new quarterback, Jaden Daniels. It seemed to be that was the source of his frust frustration. Whatever it was, he wasn't catching many passes. As a quarterback, Tyler, what do you do in that situation when your clear number one target um, isn't happy? He's not getting the ball. What can you do as a quarterback? And then how much of that kind of falls on the play caller to sort it out? Yeah, it's definitely it definitely kind of starts with the play calling. I mean, they could have started the game, you know, quick hitch to them, uh, little fly sweep, reverse type play, or just a little quick screen. I mean, there's a bunch of ways to get the ball into your playmaker's hands without having to make it all on the quarterback. I mean, you can scheme that up. You had all off season to do it. Uh, I don't see why it took so long for him to finally get a catch. Yeah, and, and look, Daniels ran for over 100 yards uh, in that game. And on one hand, you're like, hey, great. We got a new quarterback who's a dual threat. And um, this this should you know be something that we can count on as part of the offense throughout the season. But on the other hand, it seemed like there were times when maybe he could have stayed in the pocket or should have stayed in the pocket longer, could have kept his eyes downfield. What was your take on his uh, adjustment to this new offense? Now, granted, it's... It's game one for him, not of his college career, but but with these teammates and with that play caller, uh, what did you make of his performance? I think running the ball, he did a good job of extending plays, but I think he got into those situations because he's going through his reads too fast. Uh, there was a play early on where he had kind of a sale combination, which is a clear out by the outside guy, and the inside guy is running like a 10-yard, 10, 12-yard 10 out corner type route and he had the guy wide open but he snapped back to his backside read and just missed him because he's going through his reads too quick and so by doing that he doesn't see the open man doesn't throw the ball 
and he's having to, you know, now make plays with his feet. It seemed like overall a very negative night for LSU. Not only did they lose the game in in you know, somewhat heartbreaking fashion, kind of flukish, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So they they come away with a loss and and a new coach's first game, a game certainly they were in position to win. You had an injury to not only your best defensive player, but one of the the best defensive linemen uh, in the SEC, maybe in the country, in Mason Smith. Um, and uh, didn't look good on that front, and it looks like they're going to be without him for a while. And then uh, you had Kayshawn Bouti, which I, I mentioned his frustration. As we sit here right now, we're still awaiting word on what his his status is with the team, but we can see on social media he's gone and, and he's deleted his photos. He's deleted everything that's kind of related to LSU, uh, I don't want to jump the gun and speculate that he's left the team because this may very well be a temporary thing and he doesn't miss a game. But if he's your teammate, what's your thought process right now when you see somebody doing something like this and having a reaction, a negative reaction that's so public? Yeah, I think there definitely needs to be uh, a meeting between him and the coaches because uh, obviously there's some miscommunication there. Uh, when you have a playmaker like that, you got to get him the ball though. So I can see why he's frustrated. I think he, he didn't get his first catch until the fourth quarter, I think it was, or yeah, fourth quarter. Yeah. He and did so, drop some passes though. In fairness, like there were some balls thrown to him that he, that he could have caught, but he didn't. Yeah. Uh, I just think they need to, you know, figure out steps moving forward in order to get him involved in the game plan more. Cause obviously it wasn't a, didn't work out the way they thought it was going to. And so just kind of looking at this for LSU moving forward, I mean, it, it it's a loss. But at the same time, I, I don't think many people were under the delusion that LSU was going to compete for a spot in the playoff this year. So at the end of the day, a loss against Florida State probably doesn't change a whole lot as, as far as their season. Um, you, you've got one game under a new coaching staff, and it's all about, you know, building not only through the rest of this year, but but beyond. Um what do you focus on coming out of that? Obviously, there's a there's a lot to work on with special teams, but what what's your primary takeaway? Uh, they just got to clean things up. It was a very sloppy game on all sides of the ball. Uh, I mean, offense wasn't you know there wasn't many guys open. Uh, as you watch the game, there's there was never really any separation or any schemes that you know attack the zones of uh, the Florida State defense, and I just think they struggled doing that. So I think they need to get back on the drawing board, uh, probably try not to do too much, simplify everything, because this is a new system for everybody. There's going to be a learning curve with that. And so I think they just need to simplify everything, get back to the basics, and uh, try to get the ball moving. Okay, and then finally, the way the game ended. Um, it, was, it was kind of a bizarre exchange between the two teams. Let me just back up uh, a couple of minutes from the end when LSU was going to get the ball back, it appeared down seven, but for the second time in the game, they fumbled a punt return. Florida state recovers inside the LSU 10. It appears they're going to end the game. You felt like LSU was in a position where maybe they should have at least given strong consideration to letting Florida state score and, and, but then Florida State gives them the ball back on a fumble. Let's just look at it. I, I know it's an SEC podcast, but just talking football from from the football perspective, 
What did you make out of Florida State's approach at that point, needing just three points, just a field goal to end the game, and they end up coming away with nothing? Yeah, I think you got as a Florida as the Florida State offense, you got to run the ball three times, and it's got to be a handoff. It's got to be a very safe play to run because you already have three points. You kick the field goal, you go up two scores. It's a two-possession game. Now they have to burn their timeouts, and they're having to run a two-minute drill basically and try to get you know 10 or 14 points. And for LSU, I think you got to let them score for the fact that you got to save timeouts. You're banking on them getting at least a field goal. And so you you got to let them score. I think uh, then you got to march down the field, get a quick quick touchdown or quick field goal if you're only down 10, whatever it may be, and then hope for a prayer at the end. And obviously that's not the way that it turned out because Florida State tried to pitch the ball. They fumble. LSU recovers. They they get new life. Um, and it was it was crazy because I, I mentioned the two, or at least I, I know I mentioned the second one. There were two fumbled punt returns by LSU in that game. Both of them Florida State took over in the red zone, and both of them they came away with no points. So LSU, as poorly as they played, and you mentioned the poor execution throughout most of the game, they're still right in it with a minute to go. They have the ball. They got to go 99 yards, and they manage to get down the field. And uh, we we finally get to a point where, and we can, you know, eliminate the, all the discussion about the review and, you know, player being down in bounds and whether the clock should have started at that point, but it, in the end, LSU has one play from the two-yard line. Uh, first of all, what did, what did you think of the play call? Obviously, it worked. It was a touchdown. Uh, did you like the the way that LSU drew that up with one play left from the two and having to score a touchdown to keep the game alive? Yeah, it definitely had to be some type of pass play. I know they had a booty kind of on like a little – he came in and kind of just sat. So it's one of those where he's looking to hit him. And then you have guys wrapping around the backside. It's – like a Hooter in an Andy Reid offense, it'd be like a Hooters call where you have like two guys sitting almost at the goal line. And then you have two guys on the outside wrapping on the back of the end zone. And it's a, it's a great red zone play. It's I've seen it work plenty of times and he went through his reads. He got to his backside throw and he made the throw. I thought it was a, a great play call. And obviously a, a lot of, Air came out of the Florida State fans at that point. A lot of excitement with the LSU fans because we're going to overtime, right? Like we get free football, except that we didn't because uh, LSU, after having already had a field goal blocked in the first half, ends up getting the extra point blocked. I know you're not a special teams coach. You didn't play on special teams, so I don't want to you know, ask you to, to break it down. But just in general, as a player, how tough is it to take a loss when that loss is almost, I don't want to say almost entirely, that's probably not fair, but so much of it had to do with special teams errors. Yeah. I mean, you have the blocked field goal, you have the two muff punts, and then you have the extra point block. That's those are four huge plays on special teams and blocking normally from just talking to special team coaches throughout the years, blocking, always blocking inside out. You want to make them run the hump. You want to make the most, the furthest guy from the ball have to make the play. And on both blocks, you see the inside guy, the end or the offensive end, the tight end, I think it was Taylor. He's blocking out and the guy's just hopping right over him and it's a free lane. So you got to block down 
make the outside guy try to make the field goal block. And look, I think you got to give credit to Florida State for the effort that they gave on that play. It would have been really easy after LSU scored the, the touchdown, given the circumstances of the previous couple minutes, and just, you know, kind of roll your eyes, be frustrated, look ahead to overtime, but they didn't. They, we had, they had one other chance to keep the game from going to OT and, you know, guy makes a play. So uh, hats off to Florida state it was a huge win for them. Uh, obviously a tough loss for LSU, but uh, as I said earlier, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't change a whole lot about their season. It just makes week two a lot longer and, and the, the whole wait into the first conference game a lot longer for LSU fans, but uh, they'll, they'll deal with it. So, Tyler, we talked on Saturday night after the games were over about the emphatic win that Georgia had over Oregon. In the postgame, Kirby Smart said something that uh, ruffled a lot of feathers, uh, some some duck feathers, especially out on the West Coast. Let's hear what he had to say. Up against the old friend and Dan Lanning. Well, it wasn't about Dan Lanning. You know, I mean, it really wasn't. I saw him before the game. Um, got a lot of respect for him. We talked about talking after the game and, and you know, telling each other tendencies or ideas we had to try to get better. Um, we agreed not to share with other people because it only hurts both of us. And he's, he's I got a lot of respect for Dan. You know, we tell those players around that field, Dan Lanning recruited. And Dan Lanning did a tremendous job for the University of Georgia while he worked for the University of Georgia. And now he's working for Oregon. He's going to do a really good job at Oregon. He's relentless. And they'll bounce back from this. And uh, he knows that we, that we got better players. And uh, he'll never say it, but he knows we got better players, and I respect how he works. So, Tyler, when you hear that, what are your thoughts? Did you have any issue with what Kirby Smart said? Uh, no, I really didn't have an issue. Uh, I don't think he was attacking, you know, the the players. I think he's just saying they have a better team. Which, if you watch any point, like part of that game, you realize very quickly that Georgia was a way better team. So, I don't think it was a personal attack on the players. I think it was more of a a team thing and just the way it was worded and said, I think everyone kind of took it out of proportion. Yeah, I mean, look, I think he was clearly trying to talk up Dan Lanning and it's not Lanning's fault that his players aren't as good as Georgia's. In fact, Lanning is partly responsible for how good Georgia's players were. That was the whole angle that Kirby's taking. Uh, but at the same time, could there have been anything more blatantly obvious than that Georgia's players are a lot better than Oregon's? I mean, how could you even attempt to dispute that? And what I would say is, if you're an Oregon player, if you had a problem with it, you should have done something about it after Georgia marched the length of the field to go up 14-0 in the first quarter. You know, if, if you're taking issue with this after the game, you got much bigger problems to deal with. Yeah, and I think uh, I think what he was also getting to is that Lanning is a good recruiter, and so it's more of a it's going to take time for him to build up that program to a Georgia style team that he recruited for years, and so I think it's going to he's just saying it's going to take some time for Oregon to bounce back. I don't think it was a personal attack on any players. I just he stated a fact that his team was better than Oregon. And, and it's a fact. <laughs> Anybody who watched the game can attest to it. It is a fact. Georgia's players are a lot better than Oregon's, at least in 2022 they are. So I want to ask you about something that at this time of every season, we hear over and over. It is Coach Speak 101, which is that the biggest improvement that a team makes from one game to the next throughout the season is from week one to week two. So I'll ask you, Tyler, 
Number one, is this true? And if so, why is it true? Yeah, I think it's definitely true. It's the first, you know, real test a team gets against another opponent. You go from, you know, practicing against your team for months and then all of a sudden, you know, the real bullets start flying. You know, the quarterback's not getting tagged off anymore. They can finally tackle him. You know, there's there's actually guys trying to, you know, hit you pretty hard. And so when the bullets are flying, that's when you kind of find out what kind of team you have. And so I think going back, I think a lot of these teams finally have film and can see, hey, you know, where can we improve? You know, we were really bad on third down this week. How do we improve that? Is it scheme? Is it just, you know, we didn't make the plays that were there? And so finally getting film against another opponent and kind of seeing how they attacked you in ways to try to, you know, exploit your weaknesses. And if they did, how do we fix that? And so I think it's always having game film is one of the best coaching tools. All right. So with that in mind, here's a question for you. I'm going to put you on the spot. In the SEC, I'm going to give you four options. Who needs to make the biggest improvement from week one to week two in order to stay undefeated. So based on what you saw this past weekend, who's going to have to make the biggest jump in order to win again this coming weekend? Either South Carolina, which is playing at Arkansas, Kentucky, which is playing at Florida, Missouri, which is playing at Kansas State, or Vanderbilt, which is playing at home against Wake Forest? Uh, I think it's going to be Kentucky. Uh, they're going into Florida. Florida's coming off a big win. They just, you know, I don't want to say upset number seven, Utah, because it was pre- pretty evenly matched game. So there wasn't a big discrepancy there. Uh, but Kentucky didn't beat Miami of Ohio by a lot. I mean, it was a it was a close game at halftime. It wasn't like, you know, the final score ended. It was close. And I think they struggled on, you know, third down. They struggled moving the ball, running it. And so if they if they can't if they're one dimensional going into Florida, it is going to be a long day for them. Let me ask you about the psychological dynamic of this game, because on on one hand, what you said is absolutely true, which is Florida looked a lot better than Kentucky did last weekend. On the other hand, though, Florida was clearly jacked up. They were ready to play a game on their home field as an underdog against a top 10 team, and they went out there with a lot to prove, you can't say the same thing for Kentucky at home against Miami of Ohio. Does Kentucky have any sort of advantage at all in that now after getting a game under their belt, they can get up psychologically for a big game as opposed to Florida, which is trying to do it for a second week in a row? I guess my question is, how hard is it to do that for a second week in a row to, to, to bring your A game from a psychological standpoint? It's tough. I mean, they <laughs> there's a lot of energy exerted on that field to beat Utah. And so the guys are probably tired, have to recover, uh, have to get some film study in. Because, I mean, they played a good game. They played a hard game. But you played number seven. You Kentucky will probably be ranked a little, little higher than they were last week. And so you have back-to-back ranked opponents. It's, it's tough having to go out there and put two – good games back to back. Whereas Kentucky, they didn't really play well. So all they they can do is improve. And so I think they just have to go into it. It's good. Florida's going to be ranked. I don't know how high, but they should be ranked. And they're going to have to go in there and, you know, raise the bar from playing a Miami of Ohio to playing Florida. 
Well, so I mentioned that this time of year, one of the staples is coach speak and hearing all that talk about the improvement from week one to week two. Another staple of this week of the year is week one overreactions. You know, we we have only one game to go off of and we've got to make something out of it, right? And so everybody loves to just change a lot of their preseason perceptions based on what happens in that one game that they got to see. And so I'm going to throw out some scenarios to you here or, or some statements is probably a better way to say it. And you tell me, is this truth or is this a week one overreaction? LSU is the worst team in the SEC West. Truth or week one overreaction? Uh, I think that's definitely a week one overreaction. Uh, that was <laughs> They have a, a lot of learning to do. Obviously, they didn't put their their best play on tape. And so I think they have a lot to improve. They're going to get back to the drawing board. Coaches need to clean some things up. So, I mean, who knows? We'll see next week uh, what adjustments they make. But I think that's a definite overreaction. Do you have a team in mind that you think that LSU is definitely better than in the West, or you're just saying LSU couldn't be as bad as they looked last night? Uh, it's more of they couldn't couldn't be as bad as they looked last night. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of mental mistakes made last night. All right, my next one: Tennessee will be undefeated. Let's let's keep in mind uh, Tennessee absolutely dominated back on Thursday night. It was it was overmatched opponent uh, and it was several days ago but Tennessee looked really good as good as you could probably hope for in week 1 Tennessee will be undefeated entering the Alabama game and just just to refresh everyone out there the key games Tennessee has coming up in between are this weekend at Pitt and then against Akron Florida in Knoxville and then at LSU so Tennessee will be undefeated entering the Alabama game truth or week one overreaction? Oh, that one's tough. <laughs> You're playing with the heartstrings here. Uh, That's right. That's the whole idea. Um, I think it's an overreaction. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this. But, I mean, you got Pitt. I mean, Akron, hopefully they don't, you know, fumble that one. But you have Pitt, Florida, and LSU you got to play before Alabama. And, I mean – to be perfect against all three of those teams is tough. I mean, they could do it, but at the same time, that's that's tough to put three three big games like that together before facing Alabama. And so I think the only possibility they have is if, you know, they stay injury-free and it's, you know, everybody's, you know, healthy. I think that's the best shot they got. But if they're battling stuff, it's going to be tough for them. Yeah, I, I think you have the correct answer here. I'm not saying that that will be the way it plays out. I'm just saying from a combined probability standpoint, you have the right perspective, which is that it's not a 100% chance to win any of those games individually. And when you start putting together, you know, at Pitt, at LSU, and a home game against Florida, there's enough of a chance to lose each one that the more likely scenario is that they would lose at least one before Alabama. Um, but they got a shot to win them all. We'll see. And, all to right. all you, and to all the Vols fans, I just got to say, I do have a Tennessee Vols <laughs> shirt on. I am a Vol at heart, but uh, I got to you know, be honest honest on here, so I can't it, just be a that's right, you know, homer. Yeah, if, if you're going to if you're gonna be a broadcaster, you, you got to be able to bring the object objectivity uh, when necessary. And, and you did a, did a great job. You passed the first test. All right. <laughs> so the last one I have for you, um, Alabama and Georgia will both enter the SEC championship game undefeated. Truth or week one overreaction? 
uh, I'm going to say truth. I think it's, I mean, I don't see any of them slipping up. They don't have to play each other. So that's a plus for both of them. Uh, and I don't see them really having any issues. I know it's tough to say as a Tennessee guy because they both play Tennessee, but they're the two best teams in the nation, hands down. And they, I mean, even though Alabama didn't play a tough opponent week one, Georgia did, and they showed what, you know, powerhouse SEC football is all about. And Alabama, everybody knows what Alabama is, so I don't think they needed to go out week one and, you know, beat the team by 100 for us to be like, oh, they're the, you know, normal Alabama. I think most people in college football would agree with your answer there. So uh, good job. Asked a bunch of questions. You you gave answers. See, that's the most important thing. You don't beat around the bush, give a half answer. You gave full answers to every question. So whether you're right or wrong, you're a winner in my book, Tyler. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank All right. You. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for playing that game with me, and uh, thanks for joining me on today's podcast. Uh, for everybody who is just now finding us, uh, just be aware that you can uh, listen to us. It might not be myself and Tyler every time, but you can listen to this podcast. Fourth and Manageable, uh, downloaded every Tuesday, Thursday, and then Sunday morning after we record on Saturday nights after the game. And at any point, if you want to send us a question for any of those shows, uh, feel free to do so on Twitter. Just do uh, hashtag SEC22, and we would love to answer your questions. So thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Twenty four hundred Sports is an Odyssey company. 